Clint wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and become a pastor. Sadly, passion doesn't pay the bills, and well, as much as Clint was excited about his calling, he would wonder what others thought about him and his income. And so there was a lot of insecurity on my part during our dating days, worrying that, man, is she going to ever down the road feel like, man, I wish I would have married somebody else. Now, as much as I love to be able to say people don't equate the amount they earn with their worth, it's simply not true. Clint felt at times he couldn't really dish out advice because others made more or were you know, more outwardly successful. But the really cool thing is, him and his wife were able to cross off many of their life goals, even though Clint made what many of us would consider as not enough. Welcome to Beyond the Dollar with me, Sarah Lee Kane, where we have deep and honest conversations about how money affects our well-being. Clint Proctor, a former pastor and now freelance writer at Wallet Wise Guy, comes on the show to show how him and his wife lived on less than $30,000 a year and were still able to meet many of their financial goals. He also shares the emotional realities of the pressure he felt trying to balance a budget and his insecurities when his livelihood was dependent, in his own words, on people making charitable donations. Clint also shares why he transitioned away from the ministry, how he and his wife always got on the same page about their financial and life goals. And spoiler alert, Part of that is getting clear on your values. You know, what's truly important to you. I've helped thousands of folks through this process on honing in on what matters and how it can guide you in your financial life and beyond. To grab the free guide, head to beyondthedollar.co slash values. All right, get ready, grab a seat, and let's go Beyond the Dollar. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on today. Thanks, Sarah. I'm very excited to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start off with the numbers and then we can talk a little bit about how that affected yourself and your family. What was your take-home pay as a former pastor? Yeah, I I started out um, as a full-time pastor right out of college. So at 22, my first, and I got married actually a month after I graduated as well. So I Immediately graduated from college and had a wife and you know to take care of. And my take home pay as a pastor it was started out at around five hundred dollars a week, so about two thousand dollars a month take home pay. Um, and eventually that I say scaled up in uh, air quotes, scaled up, scaled up to about twenty eight hundred dollars a month is where I tapped out before I actually launched out into this new endeavor as someone who focuses on personal finance now. But yeah, that was my take home pay during those years. Wow, interesting. So how many years were you doing that for before you decided to change career paths? Yeah, about seven years, actually. Pre-recording, we talked about this, and I, I love it, is the feelings that you had where you know you love that people were coming to revise because you, you obviously have this sort of status as a pastor, people respect you, but at the same time, you didn't feel worthy of that. So tell me more about that. Yeah, there's this interesting dynamic. I think if you're in any kind of a position where you are, uh, your livelihood is derived from people who make charitable donations and giving to where this weird, interesting kind of dynamic of they want to come to you for advice on their on their life and their family and issues with their maybe they're dealing with at home or marriage, whatever the case may be, or just improving maybe their life with the maybe addiction problems they have. And so people will come and you'll be that kind of that resource for them in a spiritual sense. But because of the financial, sometimes the lack of finances and the lack of income with people that you're talking to, it can cause you to feel a little bit inadequate and can cause you to sometimes 
sometimes feel like, well, this person doesn't respect what I do and who I am because, man, I, I don't make as much as them. And whatever I do have, it just is because that they're giving so that I can even have that money. And maybe they feel like I just kind of I'm mooching off of their hard work. <laughs> And, and although you know that you're a hardworking person, and although you know that you're doing something of value, you know that in the back of your mind, there's always like sometimes there's these creeping doubts that you have to fight with and that you have to overcome. Do you feel like that affected the advice you gave? Yeah, I mean, I think it would sometimes depend on who I was talking to. You know, my uh, my 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 focus my, my focus demographic at the church was more focused towards a younger demographic, so kids, teens, singles, adults young married. So they felt like more like my peers. And so and so there, there's an interesting, I think, demographic. With, there's this dynamic of anytime you're trying to give advice to someone, if you take the, even the financial aspect out of it, when you're talking to talk to somebody who's maybe 20 or 30 years ahead of you with their career, it can feel a little bit intimidating. And I definitely felt that way. I would kind of just close myself off to giving advice to people who were uh, maybe had started their own business and they were 10 or 15 years down the road doing things that I had never done before. And then I would feel a little bit more comfortable with people around my age. But then I would notice that as um, as our careers would progress and people that I maybe had graduated from college with at you know, 21, 22 years of age, now five years later, I wouldn't say that my... I wouldn't say it ever really affected my advice that I would give to them, but I do think that sometimes it would affect my self-esteem and sometimes how I felt about the job I was doing as a husband, because the same couples that my wife and I you know, knew at, during our college days were now seeing a lot of success financially, buying homes, sometimes nicer homes than ours and cars and things like that. And although I knew that wasn't why I got into the ministry in the first place, it wasn't to get rich, there still sometimes can be a little bit of, of insecurity there, if that makes sense. Definitely. I think comparison is a very universal thing that we do. So was your wife working? Like, how did the tight budget really affect your relationship as a whole with your wife? Yeah, that's a great That's a great question. My dad, just a little background on me. My dad is a pastor and it's a, a large church here in Daytona Beach, Florida, and he's the senior pastor. And I'm I loved growing up in a pastor's home. It was great. I really wanted to uh, to get involved with his team. There's it's a church of well over a thousand people, so he's got several pastors that work under under him. And I was excited to join his team and be part of uh, the ministry here in Daytona. And it's kind of was my goal all throughout middle school and high school. So I was very familiar with the life financially of a of a pastor of someone who's in full time ministry, as they would call it. But my wife would. That was not her background at all. In fact, her dad actually is a financial uh, financial advisor. And so there was a lot of insecurity on my part during our dating days, worrying that, man, is she going to ever down the road feel like, man, I wish I would have married somebody else. <laughs> and I, and I, would, I, I would worry about that during our dating days. Like, man, was she going to someday see that maybe I'm not making as much money as what she got accustomed to when she was a kid and, and, and the standard of living that she was accustomed to and used to. And so we had a lot of conversations about that. We went in with our eyes open to this life so before we got married. And so that really helped that we talked about our financial goals. And I wanted to make it clear to her. I said, honey, I said, we're never going to be bringing in a ton of money. Like I said, like I just told you, as far as the take-home pay goes compared to maybe others. But if we're smart, we can still achieve all the dreams that we have. We can still own our own home. We can still be able to do the things that really will bring us happiness. We're just going to have to be a lot more disciplined than the average person. And there, there really can't be any waste in the budget. So we went into the, um, we went into our marriage with our eyes wide open in that regard. She was on board. She was excited to partner with me on that. For our first year of marriage, we did not 
she did not have a job. So it was literally just living off of my income for our first year of marriage. About one or one and a half years into our marriage, she got a part-time job at a school doing after-school care. It wasn't bringing in a ton of money, but because we had gotten used to living on my income alone for that first year, we were able to save her entire paycheck, which allowed us to be able to save up for the down payment on our home. So that was a, that was a big deal for us. And so we just learned to be able to kind of live lean and be content with living lean early on. And so like literally every extra 50 bucks or every $100, that was like a massive deal for us. We were able to, I think, get a, a lot of traction early because of the expectation that we were going to have to be so smart. If we had gone into our marriage thinking, man, we're going to be bringing in the big bucks, we can kind of just live fast and loose. We maybe would have gotten into a lot of debt. We would have made some bad purchases. But I do think for anyone who's um, planning on going into maybe a career in law, law enforcement or you know first responder or you're gonna you want to work at a nonprofit, any kind of a job or maybe you're doing it because of a passion rather than just the dollars and cents, you want to make sure you talk about that with your spouse and that you're both on the same page. I'm curious, what were some of the more granular conversations? Like, were there numbers involved or was it more of a bigger picture type of conversation about money? Yeah, it was just a more... Yeah, I think it was, I think you you nailed it on the head when it wasn't super granular. Um, it was more big picture. We had just a, a pretty big conversation about our goals in general. She really, at the time, you know, we 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 talked about what kind of things do you want to do career wise, what things I want to do career wise. We kept it open, but as in the beginning of our marriage, she really wanted to focus on the home. She wanted she always wanted had always wanted to be a mom. So that was kind of her initial goals. I kind of had told her, I said, do you want to she's really good at sign language? Do you want to go to school and get your interpreting certificate so you can you can do sign language translation at schools and things of that nature? She didn't really want to. I remember we sat in a parking lot one day and I was like, listen, she had a lot of pressures from outside forces, not from me, but from other people that were like, you need to do this education-wise or do that, or you need to hurry up and get this kind of a career moving. She just didn't really want to do those things at the time. And things changed today. She she feels a bit differently than she did at the time. But I remember telling her, I was like, honey, if you want to be able to stay home with the kids that we have at some point in the future, my goal is to be able to give you the freedom to do that financially. And and I told her, I said, that's going to mean that whatever it takes, I'm going to try my best to make it possible for us to live on one income. That was important to her. It wasn't important to me. It was important to her that she would be able to have that freedom to do that. So um, we kind of went in with that being our one primary goal was that we would always be able to live on one income if we needed to. And and so when we were on that same page, we always knew that we wanted to keep our expenses below whatever my income level was. And I think that that has pretty much always stayed the same, even though now she does have some side hustles and she maybe at some point will want to get a full-time career as the kids get older. I think we always want to be able to live on one income so that we have that freedom to be able to do whatever we want instead of feeling in bondage to, we have to have two jobs. And not, and that's not for everybody. Not everybody, you know, where we happen to live, the price of living is okay. I wouldn't say it's like low, but it's certainly not as high as like if you live in California, you know, in Hollywood, or if you live in New York City. So we, that was kind of one of our main goals that we had, and we've been able to achieve that. And then as she's added side hustles, on the side that has brought her fulfillment and that she's enjoyed, we've been able to see so much more goals reached quickly because we've kept our expenses fairly, fairly, fairly frugal and conservative. And we've been smart about how we take advantage of the money that we have to still be able to do traveling. And we've always tried to, um, we've always tried to kind of emphasize both of us have felt in agreement on this. We've tried to emphasize experiences over things. So like day one, I was like, I want us to be able to travel. Do you want to be able to travel? And she's like, yeah, I want to be able to go on vacations. She she didn't do a lot of vacationing when she was a kid. I had done a lot of traveling. 
And that was something that she really wanted. So I said, I think we can make this work. We can make this something even on this income. We can make this happen. And so in order for that to be a goal that we met, in order for the goal of living on one income to be possible, we had to make some sacrifices. And pretty much that came down to home and car. (laughs) So I talk a lot on my blog and other places about how if you can just keep those two expenses under control and not fall in love with the house when you're doing that shopping a journey of shopping for a home because I mean, buying a home is a very emotional experience and my wife loves to decorate. So we really had to have a lot of hard conversations while we were shopping for our house to, to keep it within budget because we would fall in love with a certain floor plan of a home, but it would be $30,000 out of the budget. And so that was a difficult time. But once we got through that step and we were both agreed about the house that we that we bought, we pretty much have had very little money issues or really any kind of money fights of any, I would say, of any uh, magnitude since then. Of course, you always have small things here and there, but that was a big deal for us. Another thing that really helped us was that we at first tried to really micromanage all of our expenses. And now we kind of have some freedom in the sense of she has some kind of blow off money, (laughs) so to speak. She can use on whatever she wants. And as long as she keeps her and as long as I keep mine under the overall, you know, cumulative budget line item, I don't get involved. She doesn't get involved. We just want to make sure that we're spending less than we make. And I don't micromanage her. She doesn't micromanage me, but yet we still have shared goals. And so that's kind of worked pretty well for us through our marriage. I am curious about you have two young kids and so managed to make it work with your wife with the lower income. But then when the two kids came into the picture, like how did that change everything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it changed things. It's continuing to change things as we go because as the kids get older, they get even more expensive. It's not a big deal when they're <laughs> when they uh, only take up a little tiny you know crib in the room and you don't have to buy them a ton of toys and they're just drinking milk. But as my especially, I have a four year old now, and so as he's getting older, more and more things need to be purchased. And of course, you know, health insurance and medical costs are something else that's always on our minds now. Thankfully, I was my church that I worked for was really good in that they had a, a pretty good health plan for us that included a HSA. So we were able to pretty much be able to pay for both of their births that way. However, if we didn't have that, that would really change, I think, how far our money could go that I was living off of with the pastors. So I would say that that's a major benefit that I had that not every pastor or every person who works for you know, a nonprofit organization may necessarily have. That helped us quite a bit. After the kids were born, you know, we've just really, I mean, how do you cut expenses? I, I, I can't really give you a, a perfect answer for that. I just know that we're just always trying to find ways to, to make things a little bit less expensive, whether that means that they share a meal when we go out to eat or whether that means that we're you know shopping the deals at the grocery stores and trying to find you know pat, hand-me-down clothes from family and friends. That happens a lot as well. You know, we we just find ways to save, but I have a feeling that that's going to become even more important as they get older, as they start their school age years and sports and all that kind of stuff. We're still kind of before that phase. We're just getting ready to move into that because my son turns five in a couple of months and he's going to be going to school. But my family, actually, my parents, they they purchased an investment property last year and uh, we turned it in, they turned it into an Airbnb. And my parents aren't super like, uh, they're not super, I guess, tech savvy. So... They asked me to like, how do we do this? And me and my wife kind of helped manage that for them. And my wife primarily manages it. So she has the freedom by staying at home with the kids to be able to to take care of the Airbnb. And that's brought in some extra income, which has been really nice with having the kids now in the home because the expenses are higher. So I would say that even if you maybe if you think, man, with this one income that I have, and maybe I have a spouse that wants to stay home, I don't know how we're going to be able to afford our expenses now that we have kids. There may be some interesting opportunities 
to bring in even 500 extra dollars a month that could just completely change the equation for you. For us, we looked at it as, hey, if you can bring in enough money from the Airbnb to cover our mortgage, how cool would that be? You know what I'm saying? Just kind of small little goals like that, a big difference. First of all, I love that both of you talk like, okay, well, this is what we want and this is how we're going to get it. Second, yeah, I understand the second, the little goals. I think that's a really great takeaway from that too, is that side hustles don't have to be this big, I don't want to say big deal, but this expectation you're going to transition to something full-time, which we're going to get to with your story, <laughs> but but it doesn't have to be that way. So I am curious though about the decisions that you've, you've made as a couple. Has that been, I'm going to assume it hasn't been easy. Do you have sort of a system now on how you talk about things? Like, do you have a spreadsheet? Like, what do you, what do, you do now if you have a, a goal or something that you're working towards and that involves money? Yeah. So I would say it's kind of a two-pronged approach. We have our monthly budget that is for the everyday expenses. And one of the big things for us is we like use the rollover budget type of an idea. So if my wife has, let's say she has $100 to spend on clothes this month, but she only spends 50, well, that rolls over to the next month. So now she has 150 the next month. We started doing that and we use it on Mint. I think most budgets you know, have something similar. We started doing that early on so that you could kind of, in a sense, pool, save up. Uh, certain category items in your budget, uh, save up some money so that you can really kind of go all out at certain times whenever you want to. We weren't doing that early on in our marriage. So she felt like she always had to come to me with every little expense. And that got really annoying for her. And because I'm more than a money person, I'm more of the, the nerd that would have like the budget always looking at it on a daily basis. So, so she would be like, hey, do we have it in the budget? And we also were doing a weekly budget, which is just sucks. But we were doing a weekly budget because we didn't have a lot of money. You know, we, didn't, we hadn't saved up very much at the time. So we kind of had to. So I get that for people who feel like they need to do that. But weekly budgets just really suck because like you just can't take advantage of deals. You feel like you're always like every budget item is super small because it's only for one week. You don't feel like there's any flexibility. So we moved to a month. uh, That was about six months into our marriage. We moved to a month long budget. That was huge. About a year into our marriage, we figured out that this whole rollover thing gave us a lot more freedom, which was huge to be able to take advantage of opportunities and not. And even if she goes over or I go over in a budget item in one month, we don't worry about it. We just know we'll have 20 or $30 less the next month to be able to spend in that category. As long as you don't on a monthly consistent basis go over, it's okay. And so it just took a lot of stress out of the whole deal. Because I mean, talking about budgets can be a stressful thing. And I, th- I, will, I will say that a lot of these things don't work if you don't have an emergency fund in place. So that's obviously a first goal for a lot of people. So you have that flexibility. So that's, that's, our, that's the first step is that monthly deal. But then there's also like big expenses. So like we wanted to redo our kitchen. We bought an old home. Our, our home is a 1958 home. Got it an amazing deal, but it had a lot of updates that needed to be done. One of those was the kitchen. It was really outdated. So we were like, you know, we want to be able to update this kitchen, but we were only on one income at the time, as we pretty much still are today. But she didn't even have the Airbnb income at, that, at this point. And so we said, well, how can we make this work? So we actually, we said, well, if we save up our fifth paycheck that we get every, four, you know, every quarter, do that, you know, four times a year. Well, that'll, that gives us about $2,000 right there. We, we usually would get like a tax refund and we, plan to save that as well. And then like just irregular income that would come in throughout the year. And we said, hey, we're going to save up for this. And this was like in May of one year. We said in May of next year, we can do this kitchen. And so literally we would look that far out with certain things. And we did. A year later, we were able to redo the whole kitchen, which was really cool. So I think that sometimes when you're on a lower income, you maybe feel afraid to talk to your spouse, especially if you feel like your spouse has expectations and maybe 
if you're especially if you're the primary breadwinner, you you don't want to bring up a topic because you're afraid it's going to disappoint them. Like if I bring up this kitchen, <laughs> it's going to disappoint them that we can't do it. Don't be afraid to talk about goals and get them voiced, even if it's going to be like a long-term goal, if even it's going to be 12 months, 24 months. I think that in a marriage, more than anything, both spouses just want to be able to voice what their expectations are and that the other person cares about meeting them. And I think that reasonable spouse is just going to be able to look at the hard numbers and is going to realize, yeah, that's as soon as we can do it. I'm okay with that. As long as you're really in this with me and you care about it as well, I'm okay with waiting 12 months, 18 months, whatever the case may be. And so for us, she really wanted to buy a house. I'm just not really emotional about homes. She wanted to have a house. She didn't want to have, you know, to worry about what she painted the walls or how, you know, how we built things into the apartment. You can't do that when you when you're renting. You can't have complete control over your home. She wanted that. And so I was like, okay, well, if we save up this much per month, we can do this in 16 months. We can buy a house, whatever. The, I can't remember what the exact number was. That sounds super long, but that was actually super motivating for her. And she got super excited about being part of the saving process because at least there was a goal. And at least there was an end point instead of it just being like this nebulous thing that we never talk about and someday we'll do. So I would say getting things on paper and discussing them is good, even if it's not necessarily something you can do tomorrow. Did you ever feel like that you were going to disappoint your wife when you would present these options to her? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think sometimes I did disappoint her. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I'm, I'm sure she would have loved uh, to have them met earlier and quicker. But I would be like, hey, listen, we have a lot of other benefits of this life. And we had a lot of, uh, a lot of internal satisfaction from the job that we did. And I was like, honey, I was like, at this stage in our life, this is what we want to do. And listing out all the pros of, of this life that we've chosen, I think would help remind us of why we were in it in the first place. And then be like, you know what? We're going to be able to reach these goals. We, must, we just might not reach them as fast as somebody else. And then I would also share with her, we would kind of look at like, okay, so let's say I was making, let's say you're making 60000 instead of $40,000 a year. How much is that extra, actually extra money on a monthly basis? It's not as much as sometimes you may think and people can quickly blow it. And so I told her, I said, you know, we, we would just be kind of, I think it would be important once in a while to look back at what we had already done. Like, hey, look, you know, we have this much in the bank. We have this much in our retirement. We have bought our home we don't have any debt. Both of our cars are paid off. We're actually doing really well. A lot of the people, you know, the Joneses down the street, they may look like they're killing it, but who knows how much of that of their assets are really assets and not debt. And I'd be like, honey, if we just play the slow game with this and don't get ahead of ourselves, you know, five to six, seven years from now, we're going to really, really be comfortable because we were willing to make the sacrifices today. And I can say now that we're seven years into our marriage, that's exactly the case. I mean, God's been good with my freelance writing business and a little bit of the blog as well. And we have zero concerns because we learned how to live. We had to make those hard, hard, hard choices early on and get disciplined that today we could literally like live on 50% of our income with no problem. And I mean, that's like crazy to say. I can't even hardly believe I'm saying that, but that's just the truth. And so it's just really neat how the hard work is paid off in the end. That's amazing. And I'm glad you brought up your freelance writing business. Is that Because at some point, you know, you were talking about, oh, look at the pros that we have, look at the great life that we have. But at some point, you decided to transition away. What prompted that decision? Yeah, it was a lot of different things that went all into it. But the biggest thing was I worked for my dad at the church. And um, that was a major draw, actually, for me when I first decided to come on staff was working for my dad and working with him because me and him are really, really close. But as I got older, 
and got closer to 30, I realized that I didn't want to be the person who took over for him after he was like to retire. And and that's not going to be anytime soon. It could be another 10 to 15 years. But at that time, whenever that time comes, I didn't want to be the heir apparent. But I also didn't want to be like having to search for a new career in my mid 40s. (laughs) You know what I mean? And and the reason why I didn't want to take over after him was I just really didn't want that pressure of for the rest of my life having to be compared to my dad and worrying, especially if things were to go poorly to sit around the dinner table at Thanksgiving dinner and be like, hey, yeah, I'm the one who blew up your church, dad. (laughs) Uh, You know, I, I just didn't want that pressure. I wanted to be able to kind of have my own existence and identity separate from him. But I also realized that I loved being in town with my family. I loved where we lived. And I just didn't really feel this super passion to go move to some random you know, state like Iowa just so I could be the senior pastor of a church. I really kind of was just in the right position to be able to help this ministry that we had going here for a good season of my life. But I saw that there was going to be an end and I wanted to kind of get ahead of it. So I was like, would I rather do a career transition closer to 30 or start that transition like in my mid 40s. And so we decided that doing it earlier was probably the better move. And I didn't know what that was going to be. But the only thing I really knew I cared about other than like what I did at the church was helping people with their personal finances. I really did a lot of that on the side. And because I had to become so disciplined with money as a pastor, it just kind of was natural for me to help other people with it and talk about it. And I felt like I had some some authority on it because they did know that I wasn't bringing in a ton. And yet I was able to reach financial goals, Kendall and I were. So I think that gave me some platform for people to, to even though I wasn't making a ton of money, they thought there was some credibility there. And I loved it. I loved helping people figure out how to talk about money figure out how to make a budget work, save for retirement. It was always just really exciting to me. So I thought, you know, everything that I've learned, I pretty much learned from reading articles online. So I was like, well, how could I make make a living doing that? I'm like, all these people that I'm reading, they're obviously making a living off of doing this. So how come, why can't that be me? That was a very naive thought, honestly. Uh, looking back on it, I had no idea what I was doing, but I just kind of went blindly with that being my primary passion was I just want to help people I'd love to be able to make a living doing it. And let's see if I can make this happen. So I went to a conference and I met some people and got my first few opportunities and things kind of blossomed from there. And it's just been a crazy ride. But I'm really doing what I, one of the only other things that I love, which is helping people find financial freedom. And it's been pretty awesome. Well, I just want to say, and this is for me, you and everyone out there, is that we're all fumbling at some point. I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing when I first started either. So you're not alone in that. (laughs) Well, thank you. So I I appreciate you sharing all this. I think that was a really great insights what you shared. Obviously, you're still involved in the the ministry somehow, but just not as a pastor because you, I think, officially left last year. Is that correct? Correct. It was in uh, June of last year. So it's been about six, seven months. But yeah, I am still heavily involved, just not on paid staff is all. How did that transition feel for you? Like, So it was your last day. Now you're a full-time freelance writer. What was going through your head? Financially, I wasn't really concerned because we had prepared for it. But emotionally, it it was definitely difficult. I felt the anxiety rise a little bit as we got closer to it because I was like, am I making the right decision? Because there's so many, there were so many good parts about it. And I think that's the hard thing in life. I think that many of us don't realize is that many times you're choosing between two good options. You have to just pick the one that's best. Not necessarily one is bad and one is good. And that was kind of me. I like, I had two really good things going and I was like, I'm going to miss people that I've worked with. I'm going to miss intangible benefits of this job and kind of the personal satisfaction I get from helping people with what I do here at the church. 
although I'll still get to do some of that, I knew it wouldn't be the same. And I think some people didn't understand completely at the time. They just couldn't see why anybody would step down from a pastoral position. And I still get that. So those things were hard. I would say that the transition, especially since my dad was pastor, he understood completely and we we're still close, but it was still hard. And I think anytime that you make such a sharp change like that, it's not going to be easy. But I would say that as I moved into the daily workflow of freelance writing, it got easier. But I will say that if you're someone who thinks, oh, it'd be so amazing to be, you know, to be a freelancer, to be self-employed and there would be no stress. It's like there couldn't be anything further from the truth. <laughs> like, like. There is some security that I don't have that I used to have and that I knew that the regular paycheck was coming in, you know, every two weeks, which is uh, not the case when you own your own business. And so money wise, if I was honest with myself, I could just like let go probably of like a quarter of my clients and be fine. But yet there's still like this internal struggle with every single opportunity you get. You don't want to say no because there's like this scarcity, I think, mindset. That can happen sometimes when you're self-employed. And it's silly from my perspective to have a scarcity mindset because I'm making so much more than what I've ever been accustomed to. But it doesn't matter. You can immediately just change your what would be like your, I guess, your, your lens that you view income through by just looking at your peers. And then immediately you feel like every single job that you let go you're letting income go and you're, and you're maybe you're underperforming and you're not doing as well as other people are doing. And there's all this pressure that you can, it's really self-inflicted pressure, but it can happen. And so I've had to learn over the last six months how to recalibrate my priorities and uh, really focus on, you know, doing a good job with my assignments, feeling like I'm doing it with excellence, but being okay with maybe not making as much as somebody else because I value my time with my family and my wife and my kids. And I think I'm getting better at that, but it's a, it's an everyday journey for sure. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you, you know, really honed in on your values and yes, you're right. It's an everyday journey. So where can everyone find you? Yeah, definitely. They can, uh, if you want to check out any of my freelance writing, I mean, you can just search for my name, Clint Proctor and, you know, Credit Karma or Business Insider. I write for them are pretty big names. I also do a lot of student loan writing for studentloanplanner.com, but I have my own site as well walletwiseguy.com. And I really focus on giving advice for uh, for young people, primarily like students and millennials. There's a lot of student loan and college content on there. Walletwiseguy.com. I also have a podcast by the same name, The Wallet Wise Guy. Awesome. Well, again, Clint, thank you so much for coming on Beyond the Dollar. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So as promised, let's distill some takeaways from my conversation with Clint. I just want to say how much I appreciated him being really honest about the insecurities he felt and the pressure he felt as the breadwinner and as the fact that he knew that he wasn't going to be making as much as maybe other people around him and was able to communicate it to his now wife pretty early on in the relationship. And so I think the first takeaway really is get clear on your values and and what it is that you're going to be facing in terms of a financial situation and just being really clear and upfront about it. Of course, easier said than done. I'm going to assume that Clint had a little bit of training simply because maybe they grew up in the ministry and were able to communicate a lot of this more upfront, especially as his job as a as a pastor, right, or former pastor. And so there are some ways that you can do that. So as I said in the beginning of the episode, I do have a values-based spending guide. And by values, I'm not talking about anything like religious. It's really a secular concept. 
in terms of what it is that will really give you meaning in your life. And it's very general. It's not just to do with money, but it can help you guide your financial life. And so, for example, for Clint, he knew certain things were important to his wife and certain things were important to him. And it was really getting clear on those concepts of of what they really value that they were able to get a lot more granular and tangible in terms of like their kitchen remodels, some trips that they've gone on. So if you're interested in that, again, beyondthedollar.co slash values. I also want to talk about the idea of having a due date or a timeline of a goal. For some people, it can be really motivating, especially if you framed it in terms of how Clint did was like, okay, in 18 months, we will have this. And so I'm going back to the conversation about the kitchen remodel. In 18 months, if we do this, this, and this, we will have this. And so I encourage you to think about what it is something that you want and make it as specific as possible. Again, once you've figured out if this is truly something you want and try to make incremental steps together. Again, a lot easier than it sounds, but taking that really simple approach and being really super clear and giving permission to yourself to want what you want. That's totally okay. Also, something that I do want to talk about is when Clint was talking about choosing between two good things. And it is very true that often you are choosing between two good things and they can both have a very interesting trajectory in your life. And so for him, he was choosing between two career paths. For you, maybe it could be choosing between moving or not moving and different standards of living. And I want to say in terms of that is that for most of us, again, I know that for some people, their financial realities are different, but for most of us, when we make that decision, it's not necessarily the end of the world. And so if we choose something, we can learn from it and we can go back to another path. And so just an example in my life, I left the teaching profession to become a freelance writer right, and a business owner. And so it was absolutely terrifying because I loved my teaching career and I loved teaching others about money and life. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to choose freelance writing. There are certain reasons why it's more important to me right now than the teaching. If I really had a hard time, I wasn't making money, I can go back to teaching. And so, of course, I did some things where I had a big emergency fund. I had a buffer amount set aside in case I wasn't making money. And I gave myself a hard deadline of six months where like, okay, within six months, I'm not making anything consistently at month after month. I'm going to go back to teaching. So think about that in your life. If you're choosing between two really good things, what would make sense at the moment, and then give yourself permission to change back. Finally, I want to talk about the idea of micromanaging your income. And Clint and I both agree, in many cases, it is absolutely necessary, especially for lower income earners. So I just want to reference John Morrow, who came on last season of Beyond the Dollar, episode 64. He was living on, I think, about $23,000 a year on Social Security, so fixed income. Charles Hill lives on about $12,000 a year on Social Security benefits. That's on episode 66. And so for them, maybe having to look at every single penny and manage their finances week by week like Clayton and his wife did in the past is absolutely necessary. 
I think when you get to a point where you do have a little bit more breathing room, it can be helpful to not just micromanage because it can be stressful and it may bring you back to a place that you don't want it to be. So I hope that helps. Um, Let me know what you think. If there's any responses, are you micromanaging? Are you trying to come up between two really good but tough decisions? Let me know. Hello at beyondthedollar.co. Or if you're really interested in honing in on your values, try to maybe communicate like Clint and his wife did. Again, beyondthedollar.co slash values. So next week's episode is with Nicole Antoinette. And she's coming on to talk about divorce and money. And her situation is really interesting in that their divorce is very amicable and they're still friends. So we talk a lot about how she came to decision of some of the financial realities that she had to face as the lower income earner in that form of relationship. All right, everyone, until next time. Thank you so much for listening in on Beyond the Dollar. If you like what you heard, please share with a friend. It'll help share the mission of what we're trying to do, which is to have more deep and honest conversations about how money affects our well-being. So tag them on Instagram when I post Beyond the Dollar or send them a link. Whatever you want to do to spread the mission of what we're doing around here. Now, if you feel that putting money towards the things that really matter is a challenge for you, feel free to download the Value Space Spending Guide. So what it is, is you're going to be able to gain clarity around what matters most to you in life, be able to name your most important values and how we can start putting money towards those things. So to download the values-based spending guide, go to beyondthedollar.co slash values. So thank you again for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode of Beyond the Dollar. By the way, thank you to Donovan Durant again for providing this awesome theme song.